0: Hi, friends. Glad you could join me. Welcome. My guest today is Alex Feinberg. For those of you who spend a lot of time on Twitter, you know that generally when you like someone's tweet, you tap the heart button. That means you like the tweet. But when you hit the retweet button, that means you really like the tweet. (laughs) So that means your followers will see the tweet, too, and hopefully like it. Well, I retweeted one of Alex's tweets recently that said, smart people are hard to come by, college graduates are not. I don't know if truer words were ever said. If I think back to 1998 when I graduated high school, I didn't know one person, not one, who did not go to college. I'll be interested to see how the university landscape changes in a post COVID world. Because I actually believed pre COVID that universities, to use an analogy, were in the left lane on the interstate let's say going east in the early morning hours, and as the sun would come up, the sun representing the rise of online learning, the universities weren't even acknowledging this massive and free vitamin D that we all have access to now. Nope, the universities just acted like the sun isn't even there and hit the accelerator on tuition and fees. But there's been a corresponding drop in the value of formalized education as online learning becomes ubiquitous. And that gap is becoming wider every day, the more and more people realize just how much can be learned on YouTube and other learning platforms. So, what's going to happen now when Johnny Fraternity's on his laptop at home? And mom and dad are peeking over his shoulder to see what they're getting in return for their tens of thousands of dollars in tuition that just so happens to be going up every year. I've noticed a few, let's call them institutions of higher learning, offering a 10% discount now that many, if not all, of their classes are being offered online. That sounds like a serious ripoff. It's a good thing universities hired all those administrators, because I've got a feeling... They'll be fielding a lot of Karen calls, and justifiably so. The credentialing system has got to go. People are waking up. They're saying, I appreciate the indoctrination and the focus on my feelings while I was on campus, but I'm an adult now, and I'm forced to consider the long-term consequences of my decisions, something you didn't do and therefore couldn't teach me. (laughs) We're witnessing in our everyday lives the inability of people to think critically. And it's largely because these institutions of higher learning have been peddling BS for so long. And I think there's going to be a comeuppance. I really do. Schools will not be forgiven for taking advantage of young people for so long. At least during the mortgage crisis, it was adults who were oftentimes being taken advantage of by so-called predatory loans. Yes, consumers were at fault too. Yes, awful, awful decisions were made against their own interests. I I, I witnessed this firsthand. Their real estate agent would tell them this isn't a wise move. It happened quite a few times, but they were going to make their own decision because historically real estate had always appreciated in value. So they would pull the trigger against their own interests sometimes. But with student loans as opposed to mortgages, you're talking about 17, 18-year-old kids who you're getting to sign up for inflated tuition rates, and they're being being—they're not even being told about the return or potential return on investment, paying exorbitant tuition and fees. I know because I work with young people who've never even heard of ROI, much less considered it as one of the most important factors influencing their decision to take on piles of crushing debt. Student debt is out of control. Universities would do well to wise up before they implode. At least maybe put your sunglasses on, huh? Universities? Let's go. Make an adjustment. Get over in the right lane because the sun will continue to rise and it's going to get a lot brighter and hopefully will get a lot brighter as a result. You're going to need to ease off the gas a little bit, universities. It's going to take more than a 10% discount to keep the best and brightest showing up. My guest attended Vanderbilt University, which along with Duke and Rice would make any list of top universities in the South. He went there on a baseball scholarship, said he was recruited before they were any good. But while he played there for quite a while, they were the number one ranked team in the country. So he tells a few stories from his baseball playing days. And what it was like playing in front of five to 10,000 fans regularly. He says LSU had the biggest crowd. University of Arkansas had the loudest. From there, we transition into a discussion about Alex's time working at Google. I found this fascinating. He was there when James Damore was fired for writing about Google's ideological echo chamber. Also known as the Google memo. Alex said he sent him a note when the memo was leaked internally. And he said to him, you're a fan of Jordan Peterson, aren't you? And DeMoor sent him back a winky face. He also talks about showing up to work the day after Donald Trump was elected in November 2016. He said the office was like a morgue and they were encouraged to pretty much scrap work that day and talk about their feelings. This is such a great conversation with as sharp a guest as we've had on this show. And I feel like I'm going to spoil some of the fun if I tell you too much, but I want to give you a preview. Do you remember when I talked about Plato on a previous episode? Well, Alex reminds me of the Plato quote which says, He who is only an athlete is too crude, too vulgar, too much a savage. He who is a scholar only is too soft, too effeminate. The ideal citizen is the scholar-athlete, the man of thought, and the man of action. If you're on Twitter, I highly recommend following Alex. His handle is at sustain gluttony. All right, let's get to it. Please enjoy my conversation with Mr. Alex Feinberg. Alex, so glad to have you here, man. Welcome. Thanks, Brad. Really excited to be here. So I know you played college baseball, right? Absolutely. Vanderbilt Commodores. Vanderbilt. That's in Tennessee? That's right. Nashville, Tennessee. Part of the SEC. So they were terrible when I was in school, but then got really good after
1: I graduated. And that's why they recruited me because they were they were still <laughs> on the on the cusp of being terrible and uh, on the ascent <laughs> of being a good team, and so I think a lot of people don't realize this when they see me now. They see that I'm in good shape, you know, I have like a good tech job. You know, they know I played professionally too. And a lot of people don't differentiate between minor leagues and major leagues. I tell people I played in the minor leagues. They remember I played in <laughs> the major leagues, which did not happen. Um, and then they assume because Vanderbilt, you know, won the national championship in 2014 and 2019 and is like now consistently probably the most uh, desired school that uh, high school baseball players want to play for. They think that we were always like that. And they assumed that I was some like high, high profile stud recruit. And that was not the case. I was a, uh, you know, probably 150th best recruit in the, in the country or something, which is not bad, but it's also not like, you know, David price style. When I got recruited the fall of 2003 was sort of on the cusp of when they started to get good. So 2004 was when they made the first super regional um, 2007, we won our first SEC uh, tournament in, in many, many years, as well as regular season, and spent 17 years as the number one team. But that was certainly not what I expected when I uh, accepted my my scholarship offer to Vanderbilt University in the fall of 2003. But I got it, and it was great.
0: <laughs> that is awesome. How did they get good? Because usually LSU, for example, gets from what I understand, they get their entire baseball budget from one concession of one football game. So all the concessions from one football game is their budget for the entire year for the baseball program. How does Vanderbilt turn things around? Was it a coach?
1: Tim Corbin took the head coaching job at Vanderbilt uh, in the fall of 2002. So for his first uh, spring season was 2003. And a lot of people see Coach Corbin speaking on TV. They know that he's helped cultivate um, a couple of national championship teams, many high, high level players who've been drafted in the first round, went on to play in the major leagues. Um, what they may not realize about him is that he's also a tremendous salesman. And so, part of turning any program or company for that matter around is getting people to believe and buy into a vision, right? Because if you don't have what you want today, uh, at the very least, you can convince everybody that we are working towards a common goal, and this is why we're putting in the effort that we're putting in, and maybe this is why uh, it's sensible for you to make the commitment that I'm asking you of. And so, because he's a great storyteller, um, he's a has very great interpersonal skills. Uh, you know, he was able to simultaneously. Uh, motivate the team to work in a way that they never worked before. Construct practices that allowed them to do that and, and make their skills better. But also convince boosters and university officials that they were doing something meaningful with the program to get you know whatever concessions they could at the time to get the funding that they needed. And so when I committed, our batting cage was under the football field. You know, it was under the under the football stadium. It was kind of bare bones, but I didn't really need a special batting cage. I just needed a place to hit baseballs. And that served as that. But, you know, by the time we had a couple good seasons under our belt, my junior year when we were the number one team in the country, we had our, uh, our new locker room completed. And that came with a new weight room, new, uh, new indoor cages, and kind of the beginning of the uh, immense and, uh, and prominent structure that you see in left field today at Hawkins Field. And so it was a, a many multi-multi-year process, you know, a 10-year process uh, where a tremendous salesman and very motivated coach Uh, was able to get an entire team, university, and community to buy into the uh, the vision of an elite Vanderbilt baseball team.
0: I wondered if they followed in the mold of Stanford or Rice, who had just won a national championship, because some of these elite universities were getting great baseball programs. It seemed to follow suit where Vanderbilt was right after Rice University. So I had a couple of guys that I went to high school with One was a junior, one was a sophomore that went on to win national championships at Rice right after I would have, I guess it was the year after I graduated from college. And I believe it was their first national championship ever. But they were pretty much a perennial powerhouse since Lance Berkman.
1: Yeah. And I think that's what people look for, whether it's a a private equity manager who's looking for a company to, to buy out at a reasonable price and then turn around, or if it's a coach who's looking for his first head coaching gig what you're looking for, or frankly, recruiting, what you're looking for is uh, individuals, companies, or teams that have a high upside that isn't yet tapped into. Because if it's already tapped into, you're not going to buy the company at the price you want. You're not going to get that job as your 1st said coaching job. And you're not going to get that recruit if other top prominent teams are going after that guy. So you need to be able to identify underpriced value. And I think what Coach Corbin saw at Vanderbilt University is unrealized potential where you have... Uh, an elite academic university that's also part of the top baseball conference in the country that for decades had not performed as a baseball team. And so you think, well, can I sell this to recruits? Can I sell an elite education to recruits? Yes, I can. Can I sell the SEC to recruits? Yes, I can. Can I sell the city of Nashville to recruits? Yes, I can. Okay, let's put it all together and make it happen. And it didn't happen because it's obviously very challenging uh, to, to have all these three things go together. So it didn't happen for many years up until uh, when coach Corbin took the role, but he was able to uh, effectively leverage what was already there at Vanderbilt university to basically bring the Vanderbilt baseball stock up to its fair value. That makes Mm -hmm. sense.
0: That's a great analogy. When I was a junior, I remember talking to a university in San Antonio. It was called Trinity university. I think they're D two or D three. And they looked at my grades and said, well, you couldn't get in here, but we could refer you to Northeast University. I guess he had a relationship there or something up in what he called God's country. I think it's in Massachusetts somewhere. And he said, and your grades wouldn't be good enough there either, but they could probably get you in on a leadership scholarship. Is there any sort of finagling that happens at Vanderbilt to try to get better athletes to the school that maybe don't have the the grades that your non-athlete might have?
1: Yeah, I mean, if you look at the high school transcript of admitted athletes, they're typically not the same as the transcript of uh, admitted regular students. And the argument that I think is actually quite sensible is, you know, universities want want to recruit people who have high potential, right? And grades in an academic setting is just one vehicle through which you can express potential. Sports are actually another equally valuable vehicle that you can express potential in. And so if uh, if a kid has done well in sports, but not in school, uh, I think a lot of people rely too heavily on these dumb jock stereotypes and think that these people aren't smart. But I can tell you from seeing this firsthand that a lot of the guys that I played with were absolutely not smart in the academic sense. You know, they would struggle to get B's and C's in the same classes that I could kind of, you know, pay attention to half the time and get a B in at the very least That doesn't mean they're dumb. They're tremendous competitors. They understand the world just in a slightly different way. And if you're trying to bet who's going to uh, help your team win at anything other than sports, uh, when the pressure's on, you want to bet on them. And so I think as a society, I think it's great that we understand logic and value logic and and, um, skills that are rewarded within an academic setting. But it's also uh, valuable to realize that a lot of the top performers that we see across industries don't actually have these skills because logic can get in the way of you performing, um, in high stress, high anxiety environments. And so if I hadn't seen, you know, guys like David Price, Mike Minor, Ryan Flaherty, who, you know, probably between the three of them may have averaged like below a thousand on an SAT. I'm not sure, but I'm just, I, I, I know one of their SAT scores and I know you know uh, how much time the others would, would spend with various tutors. These are not dumb people. They just did not get great grades because the the school system did not reward their way of thinking through topics the way a sports field would. And people who got better grades in school with equal talent to these folks were not better baseball players than them. They were not just dumb jocks. It was just that their intelligence wasn't properly recognized in an academic setting. And so we would get guys like that. And and we did a good job of keeping them eligible. And like many of them, most of them graduated. Ryan's graduating this year after playing seven years in the major leagues and so you know, that happened for sure.
0: I love hearing that. I joke that I finished in the top 80% of my high school graduating class. So I did okay in the professional world. Do you have a favorite memory from playing college baseball?
1: Favorite memory? I mean, just the relationships that I built with all my teammates. And I think this is one of the things that looking back, you know, I didn't expect college baseball to be as challenging or stressful as it was. I It was a goal of mine in high school to be able to play at a Division I program and be, you know, sort of big man on campus, garner respect as an athlete, play in front of large crowds, uh, I didn't price in the actual commitment and stress and anxiety of performing in front of 5, 7, 10,000 people um, on SEC weekends. And so actually preparing for this in practice and going through the battles on the field, you know, with 34 guys who, you know, would become your brothers in situations like that. That's the greatest thing you get from it. It's not hitting over 300 for four years, making the NCAA tournament, winning an SEC I mean, it's great to win an SEC championship, but the fact that you're doing it with your best friends is better. And the fact that 10, 12 years after we've gotten out of school, we're still very close, that's the best part of it.
0: Couldn't agree more. The relationships, the camaraderie, although I didn't get to play in 10,000 seat stadiums very often. We did play against... LSU and Tulane and Alabama, but we didn't get it
1: consistently like you did. Is is LSU the largest
0: crowd you played in front of?
1: LSU is the largest, Arkansas is the loudest. And these were really, really challenging environments to play through. You know, going down to Arkansas, Fayetteville, Arkansas, for for listeners who haven't been, which I would imagine would be about 99.9%, there's not much to do in Fayetteville, Arkansas, other than go to Razorback sporting events. Their field is like a AAA stadium. It's one of the nicest stadiums you'll see in college baseball, and they're packed all the time. So I think my junior year when we went down, we were the number one ranked team in the country. Um, we actually ended up playing Arkansas for the SEC championship in the SEC tournament. But before then, when we were playing in the regular season, you know, I think we drew like 25, 26,000 people total across three games, and they're loud. And, you know, we went into extra innings on Friday night, and they're loud. You know, Every out, loud, loud, loud. They're going to ride you if you make a mistake, so you need to be mentally tough when you're competing. Um, and it brings you close together, especially when you can bring out some wins with uh, with your boys.
0: I know you played in the Cape. I played in the Jayhawk. Our ace one year was Charlie Isaacson.
1: I think he was their number one at one time. I remember the names of the guys who were drafted in like, the first round. <laughs> yeah. um, and so like when I was there, Nick Schmidt was drafted in the first round coming out of Arkansas. And I didn't even realize it at the time, but uh, I think Dallas Keuchel pitched. I think I hit against Dallas Keichel at, at Arkansas, but... He was just an Arkansas pitcher. I didn't know that this guy would like win an, a Cy Young Award several years later. And then Logan Forsythe, he was on the, the Arkansas team as well that we played against, uh, as well as some guys who, who were quite good but never quite made it to the major leagues.
0: It's so interesting when they become great later.
1: I remember the guy
0: who gave up Barry Bonds' either the tying home run to Hank Aaron or the one that took the lead, the guy who gave it up was Clay Hensley. Well, I had to look back and see who who the pitcher of the year was in our conference and what we did against him. He struck us out 17 times. <laughs> and so, he was just like a big uh, a middle reliever in the big leagues basically. I remember seeing him out in Houston one night. We must have been 21 22, maybe 23 24, and he was talking about what kind of juice he was taking. Mm-hmm. And what do you know? He got suspended for juice, for juicing like the next year after giving up Bonds' home run for, a, for like 50 games.
1: Taking the same stuff sh- Bonds was taking? Yeah,
0: it just goes to show you that the, the middle relievers were taking it just as much as the the Bonds' and McGuire's.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't think Bonds had any special steroid cocktail that was unavailable to any of the <laughs> other players that were on the field. He was just one of the most successful people in doing it. He's an actually He's an interesting guy because he actually lifted at the gym that I would go to at San Francisco occasionally. So I remember talking to him about his training and you know, a couple of things stuck out to me in that conversation. Number one, he claimed to be faster than Deion Sanders in college, which I was like, I don't believe. I think you're just I don't think that that's true. Deion Sanders is running like a four one forty in sweats. Like I just I know you're I know you stole 30 bases, 40 bases in the major leagues, Mr. Bonds. I don't think you're faster than Deion Sanders. Um, but he also said that he never squatted when he was uh, when he was playing. He so said he's just bench pressed, he could bench press 385 pounds four times or something like that, which I totally believe looking at his upper body. But he said he never squatted. Okay.
0: We only had a few guys from our university that went to the big leagues and they would come back and visit. He said that the biggest juice heads are Bonds,
1: Randy Johnson, and Kyle Farnsworth. Farnsworth doesn't surprise me. Bonds doesn't surprise me. Randy Johnson, uh, I hadn't heard that name uh, associated with juice before, but like no name surprises me if it's associated with that.
0: So when you go and play summer ball, like in the Cape or the Jayhawk, it's, it's almost like an all-star league, right? I mean, they usually sure. recruit players from around the country. I, I used to tell people that probably 40 to 50% of my teammates were juicing, and it was just an hmm. accepted thing. What years were you there? I was there '01 and '02, or 00 and 01, something I like that. I think that
1: was maybe around the peak of, of when that was being used because I played in the Cape, and you know, people who were on stuff were open with it. Obviously it was the people who were on it that were open with it. You don't know who is on stuff that wasn't open with it. But you know, I think on my on the team of twenty that I had, you know, maybe only two. One admitted to being on something the previous year. And you if you're looking at him, you wouldn't know that because he wasn't like super ripped or anything like that. And then another guy I strongly suspect was on something, but he never admitted it. Nobody like really cared that much if he was on something. But I don't really think the, you know, outside of those two guys, I didn't see that much of it going on. And I played in 2005 and And I've heard from people who were playing who were maybe four years older than me, that it was much more common uh, when they were playing. And so I don't know exactly what happened. I don't know if the NCAA started doing testing in the summer at that point. I don't know what it would have been responsible for the uh, the downshift, but I do think at the time that I was playing, it was less than that. The NCAA specifically adopted a summer testing. I don't know when that was Interesting. Um, because I wasn't taking anything that would require me to be very cognizant of the uh, NCAA drug testing policies. But I do know that that changed at, either in practice or in rules at some point, probably between when you were playing with a lot of guys who were taking that stuff to when I was playing with a team of mostly guys who were not taking that stuff. Mm, I can remember peeing at the urinal. And,
0: you know, when you're pissing, it's awkward. You try to keep your, your eyes on the wall as much right, as possible. Right, right. But when somebody's shooting pink from beside you, it's of course. You, you can't help but pick it up in your peripheral vision. And I'm like, what the
1: hell is that, dude? What are you doing? It's like, All oh, right, well, right, right. I'm getting tested tomorrow. So yeah, yeah it was very prevalent when I played. I got tested during the playoffs and it was always like, you know, I'm kind of dehydrated after games. Like, okay, well, we'll wait. <laughs> i like, okay. the team bus, wait like an extra 15 minutes before I can pee in the cup and like, all right, we're good to go.
0: So you were kind of a Mr. Hustle, right? You you weren't the prototypical big league player, but you did get a chance to play in the Rockies organization. Yeah. Do you feel like that, that same drive and determination helped you succeed in the real world once you got done with playing ball?
1: Yeah. And, and you know, it's interesting because I don't, consider myself to be like a hustle person, I just consider myself to be a competitive person who does what he needs to do to win. And if I do what I need to do to win, but I maybe don't have the same starting hand as the next guy, I guess that necessitates that I might have to hustle a little bit harder. But for me, it's just an issue of, do I want to win? Am I willing to do what I think I need to do to win? Okay, like, let's do it. If that requires hustling, do that. And so, you know, if I set out a goal for myself that I firmly believe I can achieve, um, I have pretty high pain tolerance uh, in terms of what I will do to pursue it. And in sports, that pain tolerance was mostly physical. But in the professional world, that pain tolerance is mostly mental. You, know, you need to be able to put yourself in situations where you're going to get rejected um, many times. And you need to be able to bounce back from that. And I think to myself, you know, having the experience of having bad baseball games and having to wait 12 hours, 24 hours or longer you know, between a bad game and a good game is not an experience that many people have in work settings. And so the, the basic level of mental toughness that's required to be a competitive athlete just is not there in most corporate jobs. And I think the fact that I, I had that and have that and have those learning experiences you know, deeply rooted within me allows me to just withstand more pain than the next guy, um, which I think is kind of a superpower in many ways.
0: That is such a good point unless you've lived through an over 12 slump and had to go to bed four nights after, you know, while yeah. in the interim going to sleep and trying to right. have a conversation with your girlfriend or your mom, it's, it's, it's tough. And when you get into the real world, you realize, well, my, my coworkers haven't faced the rejection. They haven't struck out in front of 3000 people and right. had to go back up to the plate. And so, yeah, you get unique experiences and learn how to be a good teammate and be resilient. And yeah, I I figured that you had success in the real world because of your experience, especially not being the prototype where scouts were like, I could see that guy in a big league uniform. Right.
1: You had to overcome a lot. Yeah, and it also helped me, you know, kind of understand uh, some shortcuts that exist with the real world because as a baseball player where I could see maybe they're less productive on the field, who are getting more exposure, more recognition, from scouts, you notice that they have some a few things going for them. They look more graceful in the way they perform their their actions. They're typically taller, you know, maybe like well built. And you realize if you just watch how human interactions go, people who are in good shape and l- kind of look the part are always, almost always gonna get preferred, especially in situations where there's some degree of murkiness to their evaluation. And so as I was entering the the working world after I got done with my playing career, I kind of realized like I'm gonna keep training because Uh, You have advantages from being in shape and it's easier for people who are maybe going to hire you to imagine you coming to the job with a good work ethic. If your body conveys that you actually have the ability to discipline yourself and and keep yourself on a consistent work schedule. And so, you know, I think the, the background of being kind of a hustle guy, but also observing uh, the traits that other people may have brought to the field that I didn't um, allowed me to approach my working career in my 20s and 30s, I think maybe a little bit more efficiently in many ways uh, than the next person.
0: Another great point. I I saw a quote of yours that said, when credit is hard to attribute, it tends to go to tall and good looking people. Biology isn't going away anytime soon. So what's your strategy?
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And especially in sales, right? Especially in large company sales where, you know, it's like a lot of people have a lot of people can claim credit for a lot of things for, for team projects that are, you know, multi-dimensional, right? And so at the end of the day, the amount of credit you're going to get is going to be unfair. It's either going to be too much or too little. And it's up to you if you want to put yourself in a position to be, get too much, or you can put yourself in a position where you're not getting enough and you can complain that it's because of A, B, and C. But if you already know what those uh, unfair evaluation factors are going to be, then you only have yourself to hold accountable to meet these unfair evaluation standards because they're there. And so as as long as you know, they're there, they're not going away. Like, what are you going to do about it? The
0: best hitter I ever played with his name was Jamie Bubella and he went to high school with me. He was a senior when I was a junior and he made it to the big leagues with the Mariners and he had those fluid movements that you talk about. Mm -hmm. The guys who are built like DiMaggio and Ted Williams, they just have a different way about them that is very smooth. They have that <laughs> that lanky build that, that looks good in a uniform. And so if right. you're being compared to those folks, you better be doing, you better figure out a different strategy because it's going to even look more e- effortful when you do it. So right. understand that and then put forth the damn effort because that's what it's going to take.
1: Yeah. Work hard to make it look like you're not working hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah. So I, I remember a tweet you said where the best way to protest systemic racism is at the gym.
1: That was sort of a joke where, you know, I think you know a lot of gym owners are complaining that, you know, people are allowed to go to Black Lives Matter protests, but they're not. And, and like, those are fine. They get a free pass. But then if they try to open their gyms, they get shut down by the government. And so it's <laughs> tell tell the people you're doing the thing that, they're, that they accept uh, while you're doing the thing that they don't accept. And then, you know. See what, so what happens. What I thought you were getting
0: at there is people people are more luxus than racist. Oh, no, that's absolutely say, true. Yeah, yeah. The reason I say that is because my wife is not white, yeah. and she's never experienced racism in her life. And Probably. if she did, she would just assume they were being mean.
1: Right. And, but, and this is true in Silicon Valley. You know, I worked at Google for six years, and they you know the last few years they started really really. Banging a drum on all of these social justice initiatives, you know, male privilege and, and uh, white privilege, and all this stuff, and it's like, all right, guys. Um, I go to work every day. I'm noticing one thing that differentiates the way we hire compared to the, the standard American demographics, and it's we don't hire fat people, and we mm. only hire good looking people for the most part, unless you're like a really, really, really good engineer. Like if you're if you're interviewing for a business role, everybody they hire is above average looking. It's like average looks is like a seven out of ten. Or eight. Like they're not hiring ugly people. They're not hiring obese people. And so it's it's kind of how you know that they don't mean what they say because they just it's like look at their actions. They're totally not aligned with like giving everybody equal opportunity.
0: We don't live in a world where actions speak louder than words, right? People think that they're virtuous for their opinions. It doesn't matter what they do in their lives or how they go about living their lives. They want you to believe what they say. And it's a shame.
1: Yeah. And that's what happens when, when the internet becomes more prominent, there's more content that gets distributed and, and people have less time because they're absorbed in scrolling through Twitter, scrolling through Instagram, whatever. They just have less time to sit and think about things. And so when people have less time to sit and think aesthetics become more important, it's the brand image that, that becomes more important than actually like any, anything that requires critical thinking. And so words are really effective in building a brand um, actual actions can help build brands too, but they're more expensive. And so the the most cost-effective approach for corporations is to create a veneer. Veneers are cheaper than like solid wood. And so you will see that most corporations have, um, you know, in the interest of shareholder value maximization, created solid veneers that were designed by some New York PR team uh, to present themselves to the world in a way that they're not actually. Don't be evil was Google's slogan for a while, wasn't it? That's true. And, and they don't think they are evil, by the way. Of course we, can judge, we can judge their actions, whether they are or they're not. They don't believe they are. And, and most people who are evil probably don't believe themselves to be evil. They have a lot of power and they figured out a way to rationalize what they're doing. Uh, they probably think that themselves to be saviors. So true. Yeah.
0: Were you working at Google when the James Damore controversy
1: happened? Yeah, I was there. So I guess to, to bring this back to baseball, I'd always been very cognizant of, of various advantages and disadvantages that would come from presenting yourself in a certain way. And so before uh, ideas of male privilege and white privilege and all these privileges that have uh, become in vogue in the last six years became prominent, I would notice things like good looking people have advantages over not good looking people. Tall people have advantages over short people. Um, people who speak certain ways have advantages over people who don't speak those ways. So basically just noticing various aesthetic differences that allowed people to have advantages over others. And so, you know, once the the social justice, the social justice ideology became more prominent, you know, I'd had like five years of observation in my pockets saying like, okay, I mean, that might be true, but like, what about these other six things that you're not considering? And so, you know, I've, I, I think I've been able to see these issues in a little bit more of a 360-degree review than most of the people who are banging the drums most prominently for them, and, and I also am a believer in uh, evolutionary psychology. I, I believe that anytime you have uh, observed differences um, across, uh, you know, people or groups, there's all there's an advantage. It's it's because it conferred some degree of advantage in an ev- evolutionary state. Otherwise, you probably wouldn't see the differences the way you did. And so, you know, all of this. Was kind of like in my mind, not exactly crystallized. It was just like thought swirling. And then in early 2017, I, I came across some YouTube videos of a, a Canadian psychologist who I thought was the smartest person at the time I'd ever heard speak. And so I was spending like 20 hours a week listening to this guy in, in early, middle of 2017. And, and the guy ended up being Jordan Peterson. And so, you know, before Jordan Peterson took off and wrote his uh, 12 Rules for Life book that I think became like a worldwide uh, bestseller. And other people are just watching this guy's videos on, on YouTube. And I thought, yeah, a lot of the stuff aligns with things that I've observed in my real world life. And nobody's ever put this as succinctly as this guy has before. And so when um, my colleagues were the ones who found this uh, internal memo before me, and they pinged me like the Sunday before it, it was like, it became like a nationally prominent thing. And like, Hey, have you read this? I'm like, Oh, I don't know. Let me look at this. I'm at like a coffee shop on a Sunday. When I first get the memo, I get it, click on my phone. It's on an internal Google file that has since been leaked. And then I'm reading it, reading it, reading it. Like, yeah, you know, it's basically what Jordan Peterson says. And uh, I actually pinged him because he was in the company directory. And so you could go on Google Hangouts and ping the guy, ping James. I'm like, Hey, you fall. You like Jordan Peterson, don't you? Mm-hmm. And he writes back like, yeah, like winky face or something like that. And so it was obvious to me that uh, that what he was talking about was was uh, underpinned by what Jordan Peterson was talking about. It was basically a, a recasting of, of various Jordan Peterson observations and interpretations of existing literature. And when I went to work the next day, you know, it seemed like we'd survived a terrorist attack. It, it literally seemed like you know ISIS tried to to drop a missile or something on the Google headquarters because most of the people who worked at the company were not familiar with it anything remotely similar to what Jordan Peterson was talking about, they, because they'd only been hearing a very filtered curated side that describes social issues. They're all due to white male oppressors. I'm like, Okay. Um, and so when, uh, when this came out, all the people on my team who I got along with really well, so oh, this is so backwards. This is so ignorant. I can't believe this guy said this. They didn't realize that this dude who wrote this memo has done hundreds of hours more research than any of the people who are criticizing him. And you know, that became a big deal. A lot of the people on the at Google are left-leaning. And so they had not... Left-leaning people just don't have exposure to scientific or sociological research that contradicts their ideology. And when you do give them exposure to it, very frequently, they have like an allergic reaction to it, where a lot of the women on my team were just completely offended by it. But if I sat them down, which I did, and I explained to them why I believe what he wrote to be true... They didn't hate me for it. Like I could have a very reasonable conversation with all of them. You know, my director at the time was worried that I was going to like go nuclear or something like that and like make him look bad. And so he was trying to like calm me down when I was basically saying like, we're denying science here. Like there's, there's a litany of peer reviewed research that substantiates what this man's saying. And I don't know that it's right or wrong, but I, we are ignoring the fact that that exists. And so like, shouldn't we talk about that if we're going to have such a strong position stigmatizing what the guy said, And I, you know, I ultimately concluded with like all his most offensive statements were based on, on data that is in data tables that I can pull from you. I can literally do a Google search and pull the research that was done in the eighties, nineties and and thousands that substantiates the statement that women are more neurotic than men, because it's based on a research paper that was done by left-leaning sociologists uh, across 26 different cultures and 23,000 people that self like, They they self-graded themselves in terms of how they worry about various things. And what that noticed is in 22 out of 26 cultures, there was a uh, a, a moderate or greater difference in trait neuroticism between men and women. And the only cultures where that didn't exist were cultures that were not considered to be exactly female-friendly. You have um, uh, Zimbabwe, Black South Africa, South Korea, and Japan were the four out of the 26 cultures that didn't have any any meaningful difference in uh in trait neuroticism between men and women and so like they they didn't realize that that this wasn't just conjecture coming from some sexist dude like and and so they their response wasn't even like situated to understand that that yeah there actually is like a lot of publicly funded research that contradicts the the point the stance that we're taking and so you know that was sort of like is like wow we're entering the twilight zone here where this guy is saying stuff that's actually substantiated by research is what what he's saying is being completely misinterpreted by the press intentionally misinterpreted by uh by google executives in my view and nobody's going to say anything about it and we're going to continue to say that white males have privilege even though they can apparently make statements that are well substantiated by uh you know existing research And somehow that's not okay. And they're they're supposed to shut up and not say things that are very, very understandable or easy to attribute to existing research. This is not just conjecture. This is like, yeah, maybe there is something to all these studies that have been, been made over the last 30 years. I think a lot of people
0: have been enlightened by Jordan Peterson. It's no surprise that he's called a racist, intolerant. Misogynist, xenophobic, bigoted. It, it's to be expected, but you're right. Yep. Uh, Jonathan Haidt has has talked about studies. He's the author of The Coddling of the American Mind and the Right Mind. the World.
1: He was the other person who influenced um, James Moore's paper, who I, I wasn't familiar with at the time. Like, I'd, I'd seen him on Twitter. I just didn't follow him as closely as Jordan Peterson, but it was Haidt and Peterson who influenced uh, the Google memo. Oh, okay.
0: Yeah, so I had known from my own observations and just in having discussions with uber left wing people since mid 2000s, that they rarely were exposed to the the opposing viewpoint. And I'm a big proponent now, if somebody doesn't know both sides of an argument, why are you wasting your time? Because everybody has access to Google nowadays, just ask them to Google it and then come back when they know both sides of the discussion. And then you can you can spend your time on it. Otherwise, it's not worth your time. But Thomas Sowell is now becoming a little more mainstream thanks to Twitter, I think, because mm-hmm. you'll see people like Paul Graham retweeting mm-hmm. Thomas Sowell. And, and that's, that was unheard of, I think, three or four years ago. But mm-hmm. I started reading Sowell back in 2003. And I'm like, how is not everybody reading this? This is, this
1: is so common sense. Well, I think type. there's an agenda behind it. Right. And so it's like, follow the money, right? If you don't, if you can't explain something, that just doesn't make sense. Like you always follow the money. And so what I think has been going on over the last 50 years is a systemic impoverishment of the American middle class. And uh, the way that's been accomplished is, uh, is multifactorial. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a combination of uh, artificially low interest rates enabled by a fiat currency, uh, since the USD pegged from gold in 1971, uh, that advantages capital holders over workers uh, as access to cheap capital is great for business owners who want to, to borrow money and, and buy shares back or expand their businesses uh, and, and asset holders, including homeowners. But it's not so great for people who rely on uh, you a know, stable money supply to like buy goods at a stable price. And so what that means is the cost of living is going to increase faster than their uh, salaries are going to increase for many people. And so I think that's going on simultaneously with the outsourcing of American jobs, um, which is somewhat done to stabilize uh, inflation. If you have stuff made more cheaply in China than in the United States, you can sell at Walmart for $2 instead of 4 You can offset uh, inflation that would exist uh, because of central bank policies that were created to uh, benefit Wall Street. In addition to all that, you have both parties who are kind of working in tandem to gut uh, gut rights of, of the American worker. And so I think the one thing that, uh, that all of these initiatives benefit from is a distraction. Because if people kind of understood that the reason their lives are getting progressively worse is because government policies are explicitly created to benefit rich people at their expense. They might get angry about that. But if they can distract everybody with highly emotional issues, you know, like, you know, transgender bathrooms, or even gun rights, or even abortion rights, it's like those don't cost corporations anything. They just keep making their money, not paying taxes on it, making their uh, executives and shareholders rich. Those are the dream political topics for um, a political party that's in place to enrich billionaires at the expense of the working class. And so that's what I think is going on.
0: You said your office was like a morgue the day after the 2016 election. Tell me yeah. about that.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's true. Where. Um, you know, I came to work because it was a Wednesday, and like I was there. <laughs> like, oh, well, this is kind of vacant. Like a lot of people, like um, I, I don't, I can't go in. Okay. <laughs> so, and normally at the time we'd have a team meeting on Wednesday, and I got repurposed to just talk about everybody's feelings. Wow. Okay. And like, I'm not. I wasn't going to be insensitive. Like, I, I didn't actually follow politics that closely at the time at the time I was still under the impression that these people who were like really, really disappointed were more politically informed than me. Cause I just like, I never really read the New York times didn't really read the NPR NPR or anything like that. And so I just didn't know as much as, as the people who were quite upset knew, or I thought I didn't know. And it wasn't until like a few months after that, where it became pretty apparent that uh, a lot of the people who were upset were also believing these conspiracy theories that, had really odd timings associated with them, like the fake news conspiracy or uh, or the RussiaGate conspiracy. It's like, all right, guys, like you're this isn't these thoughts are not coming from some some area of greater awareness. They're they're coming from an area of a lack of awareness, and um, and so that was a really eye opening experience that I went through uh, at the time when you know people were talking about fake news as if it was like a real thing, and so you know I think. A lot of the last few years in Silicon Valley has been like fighting fighting ghosts, you know fighting fake enemies, fighting enemies that don't exist, um, to distract people from focusing on the issues that are really there. Why are only 20% of women um, graduating with STEM degrees compared to men? Could there be some sort of difference in cognitive orientation that makes men more interested in STEM than women? Right? Is there is there an explanation other than systemic sexism that can possibly explain this difference? And if we do think that we're going to benefit from having more women in STEM, uh, can we create programs that still acknowledge that uh, there's a very good chance that a lot of the cognitive differences that we observe uh, cross culturally between men and women are uh, biologically based? Right? And that's that's kind of like a third rail that a lot of these uh, equity proponents are not willing to grapple with. It's like, well. What are you going to do? You're going to change our biology? You're going to commit genocide on everybody who doesn't believe in your your narrative? Like, I don't know. That's the fear. Do you think we're headed towards civil war? I do. Um, And the reason I do is because uh, we have two sides of the country who who are operating on different logic systems. and, And both of their leaders understand how to operate within their own logic systems. But when there's areas of disagreement they can't see when they're wrong. They literally don't understand when they're wrong. So if you don't understand when you're wrong, every time you lose, you assume the other team is stealing from you. What stops an internal conflict? It's an, it's an acknowledgement that you didn't get what you wanted and it was fair, right? That's how human societies work at scale is people have laws. You see, humans have, have, uh, have an infinite desire for for getting their way and so the only way that you have societies exist about mass protests left and right is if people cannot get their way and also acknowledge that's kind of the way it is or or furthermore it's probably fair that i didn't get my way but right now you have two political parties who've convinced their their constituency that the reason they don't get their way when they don't is because the other, other team's stealing from them and created a system that's like structurally unfair. So how do you, how do you, come, how do you step down from that? Uh, unless you have a leader who can, who can kind of spread the middle gap and say, all right, this is why this guy, these guys are lying, this is why these guys are lying, and this is what we're going to do, and we're going to bring everybody together you're just going to see further division because the, the internal political incentives within each political party incentivize further division. The way you rise within uh, each political faction is by encouraging division within society. When the benefits of the game can go to the person who's able to uh, inspire the most raw emotion within their constituency, that's not good. <laughs> I was interested to hear you talk about fake news because
0: I got into a Twitter battle with someone recently, and I rarely ever do this, but I thought somebody was seeking truth because she had asked, well, where did the fake news stuff start? And I said, well, in December of 2016, Hillary Clinton, she gave quite a few reasons why she had lost the election. And one of those reasons was due to fake news on Facebook and and social media. Donald Trump co-opted the term and first used it in January of 2017 when he called Jim Acosta fake news. He hadn't used the term fake news until Hillary Clinton blamed her election loss on fake news. And so I shared that thinking that we were on a a fact-finding mission and she started calling me Sean Hannity and and dropping bombs on me and I I just slowly backed away. But yeah, it's interesting. There's a lot of uh, motivated reasoning going on or emotional reasoning going on. And you're right, if you can get a leader that appeals to that sort of thing, I, I fear the the slide into violence. It, it's
1: it's scary. So I actually posted this the other day. If you actually look at Google Trends for when fake news started becoming like searched in mass, uh, it was like the Thursday after the election. So it's like, oh yeah,
0: huh? So hmm. it must have been bandied about by the likes of David Plouffe or somebody who's high up in Democratic circles as one of the nineteen or twenty reasons that the election was lost on the Democrat side and, and then maybe she made it part of her speech in December because it was a, a BBC article
1: where I had read that and I Googled it because I had remembered it that way and found it. The timing of all of it is just suspicious and it's weird because you know, the way I recognize patterns is I notice deviations from existing patterns. And so the way red flags pop up in my mind when I'm used to seeing a certain pattern and then I see a deviation from that pattern, I can't explain why. And so, you know, when, when they, people were covering the 2016 election, talking about Russia, talking about fake news, it's like, if these things were real, the timing of it wouldn't have been the way it was. Like, if Russia was trying to hack the DNC's emails or something like that, like, usually your first attempt isn't massively successful. Usually, if you're trying to do something, you, you try about a hundred times. It's like, Look at the United States' attempt to, to kill Fidel Castro. If you look at bi- biographies of him, it's like the U.S. tried to kill Castro like hundreds of times and was unsuccessful. So usually when you have a foreign operation that's, uh, that's targeting uh, an even somewhat sophisticated enemy, you have a trail of failed attempts that can be documented. And so when the first attempt is successful and attributable to a foreign enemy, you're like, hmm. I don't know if I believe that. And, you know, and then the same thing's true with fake news. It's like, if it was an issue, you probably would have brought it up before you lost.
0: Well, I see fake news every day. It's just what the National Enquirer used to be when you check out at the grocery store. It's on every article that you read. At the bottom, you'll see a girl with oversized boobs, and they're trying to get you to click on this article that says that Trump got peed on in Cuba last night with Fidel Castro's granddaughter at the party. And it's like, do I want to click on this? and I believe that they were trying to attribute the loss in the election to people being so stupid as to believing all of the national, the modern National Enquirer articles at the bottom of every legitimate article. But those advertisements are probably on my blog. I apologize if they're there, but I'm not promoting fake news. That's just what, that's what Google gives you.
1: The other thing that isn't considered is, you know they say, well, fake news is so dangerous, you had a, a shooter who went to Comet Pizza after the, you know, there's a Pizzagate, and the media, number one, I don't know how to interpret all of this Pizzagate stuff, but I do know that it was really odd that all these code words and certainly code words were being used in John Podesta's emails talking about pizzas, hot dogs, all this weird stuff. And it's like, look, I don't know that that's related to, to pedophilic behavior, but I don't not know it is. And I would like a thorough investigation of that rather than say, oh, it's just fake. Like, no, it's not fake. Something sketchy is going on there. I don't know what it is exactly. And so like an honest media would actually do a little bit of digging and to like figure out what that is. Secondarily, the, the question that I would pose is, okay, so if fake news is enabling this, uh, this comet pizza shooter to go in and, and create havoc. What about the New York Times' role enabling the Iraq war, right? Because the Iraq war was started on fake news. And so like the Vietnam war was started on fake news. So like, is it only fake news when it goes against the... the desires of an intelligence agency? Maybe. Maybe when it goes towards the desires of an intelligence agency, that's just news.
0: I think it's been weaponized for, to be what you oppose. There's no doubt about it. But yeah. you're right. Everything you say is true. Yeah. I think the media started to go awry when they had an opportunity to be on the networks when our first black president was elected. You you knew that you would be on television for the next three thousand years if you got to be a part of that, and then you've got the opportunity for the first female president. It's almost like a chance at immortality, right? If you get to interview the first female president of the most powerful country in the world, mm-hmm. it's it, it's interesting. Do you think the polls are BS? Do you think we think that we're having a, having a rational discussion? Mm-hmm. But those who are on one side of the political aisle. Would think that we're hardcore Trumpers just because we're capable of analytical thought, right?
1: Yeah, that's true. I've never voted. I've, <laughs> I've, I've never registered to vote. Like I just don't. I, I uh, approach my life as if I'm the one in control of my destiny. And if my politicians do things that I firmly disagree with, I will leave the country, like you have, which I probably will do at some point uh, in the next several years, anyway. And so it's, the question is, when do I flee? The, when do I flee the ship entirely? Yeah, I mean, dumb people are gonna be dumb. You know, it's, <laughs> it's hard to. Uh, it's it's like people will come up with any justification they possibly can to, you know, not listen to people whose IQs are three standard deviations above the mean. Oh, IQ doesn't matter. It's like, oh, it's, it's fine, fine. You're right. Nothing that I'm thinking is sensible. I'm, I'm completely uh, bending over backwards to my biases. I have. Uh, no capacity for uh, grappling with things that, that discomfort me, despite the fact that I can train intensely at the gym for multiple hours during a session. Like, you're right. I, I just I, I have a total weak mind. I just believe, believe narratives that, uh, that tell me I'm great. Yeah. And it's interesting because it's like the people, like people with good bodies tend to not fall into delusional mindsets because of the discipline that's required to have a good body right? And so you look at the people with delusional mindsets and like uniformly, they're almost all non athletes. It's just not an observation.
0: Well, they're raised in a meritocracy and they tend to be more masculine and tough minded. And yeah, I mean, there aren't too many masculine men who are at the protests, let's say that are in Portland, throwing Not that I'm saying anywhere. I mean, I, I'm, <laughs> right. I'm
1: not planning on going to any of those protests from a journalistic standpoint, participatory standpoint. I, there's no need for me to get, put myself in bodily arm by showing up. So from what I see in the media, that's correct. But you know, I'm not there. I don't you actually see, know. I believe we
0: actually need to get back to some of our former traditions in terms of masculine feminine. I think that yeah. we never discussed the masculine feminine anymore. Nope. And I think Jordan Peterson is smart and wise to bring that back. If you mm-hmm. saw his, his, I'm sure you've seen it, that interview that he did with that British gal Kathy Newman, yeah. Yeah, thank you. The <laughs> Kathy Newman interview. That was the perfect example of what's gone wrong, in my opinion, where one side of our political aisle acts as she does and yeah. thinks that she's the super smart one, probably because she has an Ivy League degree. And so she's mm-hmm. right all the time, probably because you know, people who have less control of their emotions are somehow more right it's this whole happy wife, happy life idea. Well and it's making people miserable.
1: Well, go, you know, follow the money, right? People who are less in control of their emotions are more or less easier to advertise to profitably. Ah, and
0: manipulate, yeah. absolutely.
1: Yeah. And and who is responsible for a majority of consumer purchase decisions within household? Right? So if you're a media company that has quarterly profits that you need to need to um, report. Um, which eyeballs are going to be most valuable for you to, to present your content to? It's going to be female, uh, eyeballs that skew, um, skew more emotional and more likely to make impulse purchases because those are going to be the highest, um, highest return eyeballs you can possibly advertise to. They're going to result in the most transactional sales. Um, and they're going to enable you to sell advertising slots on your content, on your webpage at a higher rate. So if you're a profit seeking media company and you know who your advertisers are and you know who their buyers are, you'd almost certainly need to create content that is oriented towards the typical American consumer, which is a, uh, a female consumer.
0: I like what you said too about strict body. It involves discipline. When you see somebody who's gripped, you know that they are disciplined and typically one discipline affects the next. If you go to the gym, you're likely to eat well. You're likely to sleep well. You're likely to be more energized and accomplished Mm -hmm. in all these different areas of your life. Discipline might be one of the main things that people are missing nowadays. And it's because they've been coddled and they've been protected from emotional and psychological pain, which is what Jonathan Haidt writes about. I'm curious do you think people are lying to pollsters now? And if so, Do you think that as we get closer to the November election that the media will suddenly maybe release information that would hurt Biden's campaign? Because I can't see them staying in the tank for Biden when the next four years their ratings would go in the tank, in the actual tank. Mm,
1: I don't know who's actually controlling them. So one thing that I'm I'm skeptical of, and I have no proof that this exists. This is sort of like a of these red flags that uh, that I talk about, where the patterns just don't make sense. Is I think you know China China has a multi hundred billion dollar dollar surplus every year that they need to invest somewhere, and they used to invest in treasuries, which they're no longer doing at the same rate, but they still have these dollars. And so what can you do with dollars? You can buy barrels of oil with dollars. You can buy gold with dollars. Um, You can also buy advertising slots, and you can also fund scientific research with dollars. And so some of the coverage that I've seen surrounding coronavirus, surrounding politics has just been a little bit weird, right? And and an example that I'll give is like ESPN is very firmly anti-Trump, is very, very firmly pro, you know, quote unquote, social justice, except when it relates to China, right? when it relates to China, they're not going to cover the issues between China and Hong Kong. So it's like, okay, Disney is obviously trying to be friendly with the Chinese communist party. Right. Otherwise, if they were uh, a network that was oriented towards free speech uh, or at least, uh, you know, creating content uh, geared towards social justice, they would say, okay, we don't like what's happening domestically. We also don't like what's happening internationally, but when you're segmenting it to where you can only complain about a, you can't complain about B. You're like, okay, Hmm. Who's funding you? And, you know, in tandem, you know, I did a, uh, an interview with World Health Organization representative a couple months ago, and, you know, she's very, very careful. She's very uh, open, the anti-Trump, very careful about what she said about China. And I'm like, hmm, that's really interesting. Like, you're based in the United States. You're, uh, you're critical of Trump, which is fine. You criticize anybody you want. But in tandem, you're very careful about uh, criticizing a foreign country. Why is that? And so I think there's some sort of financial um, pressure, either directly or indirectly, that uh, the Chinese government is placing on our media that kind of explains um, some of the uh, otherwise illogical conclusions that they come to, why certain uh, certain news stories just never take off and why others get more coverage. And so I don't think that you're going to start seeing any bombshells covered by the left-wing press as they pertain to Joe Biden. I think you could have 10 bombshells come out. I don't think anyone would be covered. I think they, don't, they talk about them being conspiracy theories, the same way the, uh, the 2016 DNC email hack was covered. A lot of left-leaning publications or left-leaning uh, media organizations like CNN were telling their readers that it could be illegal to, to come into contact with this information. It's like literally you have information that talks about the, um, you know, the, the bad behavior, the conspiratorial behavior. Uh, by your elected leaders, and you have the media telling people that it's not real or telling people that they could get in trouble before reading it. So these are not people who are interested in spreading truth, as far as I'm concerned.
0: Yeah, I guess my point was more, the media would have had four years of the first female president, potentially eight years. And so they had a reason to favor Hillary Clinton and Democrats. As we approach this election, it's clear that our media would prefer Joe Biden. But but, I can see as we get into October, them switching and favoring Trump, maybe not switching overtly, but something leaks about Biden that would really harm his campaign, something racial, for example. That way they get four more years to cover Trump because if Trump goes away, their ratings really, really tank.
1: Maybe, but then you you also have to wonder like, what is the purpose of the media? right? Mm -hmm. So the media has quarterly earnings that they need to report to, but then there are also simultaneously like propaganda uh, assets that are owned by rich people. So internally, you have to compensate the executives to maximize the profitability of the asset. But externally, a lot of them are still owned as propaganda assets by billionaires. And so you have to think like, Whose will is 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 greater? Is it the executives who desire uh, increased earnings and, and maintaining their bonuses, or is it the owners who want uh, you know a globalized world with lower tariffs, easier access to foreign labor? Um, that would probably be more easily achieved with a democratic president. Like, and I don't know, but I actually think it's more the, more the latter than the former. I don't think that, like, I think the media can be manipulated on micro level stories uh, that help them hit their quarterly earnings, but I think. That doesn't change the fact that they're still controlled by very rich people who who seek to influence public opinion.
0: In China, there are 1.3 billion people. And I think those who tiptoe around Chinese issues want access to those potential consumers. And that's why yes. the NBA is not saying anything about the Uyghurs being blindfolded and shaved and put on trains to concentration camps. I think people like Stan Van Gundy, I saw a tweet, he said recently that America has been oppressing Black people for 400 years, and therefore we should focus on our own country. So you have a problem that's in the past here, a problem in China that is currently happening, but you don't want to speak out about it. It just tells me that it's not principled, and it has everything to do with the potential harm that could be done by losing access to 1.3 billion consumers. I agree. I
1: agree very much.
0: Let's talk about eating right and being lean because I I do see what you look like. And uh, it's pretty impressive. (laughs) How old are you? 34.
1: 34.
0: Okay. So when I was 34, I probably had a little bit less body fat percentage, but I did hit 40 recently and well, we'll see what happens. Is it now routine for you not to eat processed food and sugar?
1: Yeah. I, you I, don't have I to do discipline yourself or anything. No. Um, and, and I do eat like some processed food, but not, it's by default, my, all my meals are cooked by me. You know, basically since 2014, I, I didn't realize how lean I could get. I thought I was in good shape when I was fat, apparently in, in retrospective pictures. But at the time, I thought I was actually in decent shape because I was training all the time. I was running 20 miles a week. I was lifting weights five days a week. Um and in my mind I was still an ex-athlete trying to get the benefits of, of having an athletic build in the corporate world. Um, but I noticed a couple things. I noticed that if I increased the intensity but lowered the uh lessened the duration of my training, uh I noticed a significant drop in body fat, which I didn't think was supposed to happen in the old calories in, calories out framework because I was burning fewer calories at the time. Um the second thing I started doing around 2014 was uh limiting my carbs and, and swapping out my ingredients to to favor quote unquote healthier ingredients, more natural ingredients um, in my food. And so basically with the same effort that I applied to be fat in 2014, I applied every year. I just got more efficient with that effort that I was applying to where I, my body fat dropped like 8%. I went from being like, you know, a little bit chubby to like having abs that I didn't even think were possible to have, um, especially earlier this year. And so I thought that attaining the physique that I attained would, would require, you know, levels of effort that I was unwilling to give. But it, it just so happened that as I got more efficient with how I ate and how I trained, I actually found it easier. I, I'm not working out as hard. Um, it's, it's not as mentally taxing as it was in my, my mid-20s. Um, my diet tastes just as good. And I eat just as much quantities of food as I did with my 20s, in my 20s. I just made a couple tweaks to make the ingredients uh, a little bit more natural and to uh, optimize for power as I train, both in running and lifting. And so what I wanted to do once I discovered how easy it was for me to make fitness progress a couple of years ago is I wanted to share my findings with other people because so many people struggle with, with fat loss, with diet, with getting the results that they want in the gym. And I thought, man, it's actually like really easy for me right now. Like I'm getting results that I don't even think I should be getting. It would just constantly surprise me when I would hit new PRs and continue to lose body fat. And it's just like, and I was like 30, 31, 32 years old when I was going through a lot of this. I'm like, man, I had no idea how easy it was if I just do the right thing. And so I wanted to you know, share this with the world, started posting some stuff on Facebook that didn't really go anywhere. And then I started posting on Twitter, but I didn't really have much of a following. And it wasn't until early 2019 when I bought Ed Lattimore's book, created my new account and started posting on it that I, I started to get a little bit of traction and it took a while, maybe six months before anybody to anybody meaningful to notice, but, uh, they did notice they started sharing my content and then there started to be demand for, you know, how exactly do you eat Alex? How are you eating 3000, 4,000 calories per day and getting lean? And so I put a book out, 10 easy wins for easier fat loss, where I talk about how I eat intuitively, um, you know, basically eating, um, you know, protein dominant whole foods whenever I'm hungry until I'm not hungry, always, irrespective of the hour of the day, never eating when I'm not hungry, irrespective of if it's meal time or not, as well as about nine other, you know, shortcuts that aren't painful. Like, this is not like, well, just don't eat, just eat salad. Like, that is not my approach. My approach is here is what my body's craving. Here's how I can deliver it to it, deliver what it wants in the most tasty way possible that can deliver me the best results. And then obviously after people read that, you know, that book's been purchased by people in 25 countries. I thought I'd sell like 25 copies when I first put it out because I know how hard it is to sell things. But uh, you know, it's it's sold a lot more than that and uh sold across 25 countries. And a lot of people are saying, Well, you know, what about your recipes? I'm always seeing your, your pictures. How do we get your recipes? So I put a recipe book out uh in January that's continued to do well. Uh massively simple recipes for very busy people because a lot of people don't realize when they're seeing my posts, whether it's on Twitter or on Instagram that all my stuff for the most part takes like 20 minutes to cook. It's not super hard. Like I have a full-time job. So I'm not trying to create like super intricate dishes that have like multiple steps and various, very complex ingredients, everything I want to do simple. And so I basically have brain dumped what, uh, what it is I believe from a a eating and cooking standpoint, um, to a couple eBooks that I put out. And, um, very soon I'm going to be putting out a video course that ties it all together, both how I eat, how I cook and how I train, Um, that I hope can give some people uh, some ideas as to uh, how they can more efficiently approach fitness in their life.
0: When did you leave Google? Where do you live now? Give me a little bit of your background.
1: Yeah, so I left Google in uh, March 2018 was the last paycheck that I got from them. I've actually been working at a cryptocurrency exchange called OKCoin since June of 2018. I'm still there. So I've been there for over two years. And so a lot of the stuff that I'm doing um, requires that I balance a regular working schedule. And so like regular people you know, I have limitations for what I can do and what I can't do as well. And everything that I'm doing from a training, from an eating, from a cooking standpoint needs to be time efficient. And so a lot of the stuff that you'll see in training manuals or in cooking manuals or in uh, diet frameworks is like, it's stricter than we can actually be given our travel schedules, given our work schedules. And so I kind of show people like, this is what I do when I'm traveling to make sure that I'm minimizing the damage that I'm putting on, on my body this is how I spend money to make sure that I'm, I'm maximizing the sleep that I'm getting so I can recover better. This is how, uh, how I think about eating uh, in a situation where I may be overeating for the last couple of days. And so it just covers like real world hacks that, uh, that I use and have used successfully to lean out without having to go through the process that normal people think they need to go through to lean out.
0: Do you think you have an advantage being a former athlete? Because I know people ask me all the time, when did you start working out? And I'm like, I, I've never stopped. And I think yeah. that makes it a lot easier for guys like you and me. Have you ever really stopped?
1: Uh, no, I haven't. And uh, and so I think it definitely helps being a former athlete. I think the more power your body can produce, the easier it is to, to have success on high calorie plans. That being said, uh, I was a former athlete when I was fat in 2014, 2013. So it's like, my genetics are worse now as a 34-year-old male than they were as a 27-year-old male. So yeah, I have to win at my back from a, a genetic standpoint in, in, in as much as I'm able to produce powerful movements that, that can raise my metabolism um, you know, better than the next guy. At the same time, I wasn't doing that at 27. And you, and you can all see from my profile what I looked like at the time. So like, I'm not Superman, I still need to get things right in order to get the good results that I want. I had P.D. Mangan on the show recently. Are you familiar? I, yeah.
0: So he talked about how in hunter-gatherer days, they only got about six to six and a half hours sleep. And he oh. opposes much of what Matthew Walker talks about in his book, Why
1: We Sleep. I feel fine on six, six and a half hours. So I don't I don't get more than that. But okay. what, what's, what's P.D.'s? Uh...
0: Well, he just thinks that not everybody needs seven to eight hours and... He lives on about what you do
1: yeah I mean sometimes I'll get seven seven and a half maybe sometimes we'll get eight but I'm usually around 6 It's let's fun you married not at the moment no Have <laughs> <been here. laughs> no no I'm just kidding I'm not I haven't <laughs> been don't plan to be in the near term but you know hopefully at some point that'll happen I stayed a bachelor until I was almost 40 yeah you know I feel like you know Dating opportunities are widening, career opportunities are widening. I don't feel like I'm like getting older in many ways. I feel like I'm getting younger. So I you know, I've been in my mind, I've been 27 for quite some time. So I, I feel like I have a, a longer biological timeline than the next person to kind of choose that and settle down. So when you look at the charts, men are most attractive
0: to women at about age 36. On average, that is the Oh, I exact thought it was like age. 33,
1: 34. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting to see those okay results. You might be looking at the same ones I did where it's like you know, women. Yeah. It's it's like 33, 34 for men, but it's like, yeah, it's like basically whatever the woman's age is plus five, but it kind of settles around 33, 34. And like for every age of man, it's like 23 year old (laughs) woman. That's right. (laughs) I've seen,
0: I've seen where you talk about training your palate for someone who wanted to train their palate. Where would you tell them to start?
1: Uh, So rather than withdrawing, Foods that you want to eat less of. What uh, what I did was I added foods that would make the nut taste as as prominently. And so instead of eating less sugar, I, I actually just uh, ate the same amount of sugar and adjusted the uh, the like composition of my snacks. And so instead of eating a bag of M Ms by itself, I ate a bag of M Ms mixed with nuts. And I would slowly increase the amount of nuts I would mix with the M to cut the sugary taste. So that over a three-month period of time, I just stopped craving the sugar as much as I originally had. And so I wasn't going through any sugar withdrawals. I needed the calories for my training. And by the end of that process, like I still eat sugar every once in a while, you know, I'll eat like a couple cannolis a year, you know, probably maybe I'll eat like a half gallon of ice cream over the course of a year or something like that. Like if I want it, I have it. I just don't eat it that much because I just don't crave it anymore. That sounds like, James Clear's plan where you substitute in some things for things slowly over time? Yeah, that's kind of how I do it. It's like, you know, playing sports required that I understood human psychology understood kind of the concepts of boiling frogs. And I kind of thought, okay, how can I boil my own frog? How can I maximize the enjoyment that I get out of certain things? And I kind of realized like sugar consumption doesn't make people happy, right? So when you increase the amount of sugar you eat, you're not happier. You just have to eat more sugar. And so I kind of figured like I get the same amount of dietary enjoyment as the guy who eats a lot of sugar. I just don't eat that much because I can savor and value what little sugar I do put in my body. So I, I literally get no extra benefit from putting more in. It just, it increases the threshold that I need to satisfy on a daily basis when I eat more. So I might as well just not eat it. Do you drink at all? Sometimes. Um, I found that like it doesn't really help with my sleep. And so I think switching from alcohol to like more uh, edible cannabis it's something that I had a lot of success with. It's been one of the best decisions of my life to switch from you know, a, an alcohol to a, an edible cannabis-based sedative, I think, which is kind of what I need to settle myself down at the end of my days. And know, um, yeah, I've been doing that for about five years and- Is that CBD or is it? No, 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 THC. I mean, there is some CBD in it, but it's a THC-based. And which state do you live in? Um, I've been living in California for, uh, for many months. Um, and then obviously, you know, going into the red States presents a little bit more challenges. We'll figure it out.
0: I saw where you posted a good chart about the average number of drinks that different segments of the population drink and that most of the consumption is done by the top decile, right? The the top 10% consume like 73 drinks a week. Yeah. It's a lot. (laughs) Yeah. It's like over 10 drinks per person. And that the yeah. bottom thirty percent don't drink at all, yeah. and so as far as alcohol, sugar, different types of con- consumption that Americas are, Americans are partaking in, it's it's those
1: people are addicted, and that's
0: yeah. how consumer society is thriving.
1: Yeah, vice industries require addicts to, to to subsist. Like these are not about selling healthy amounts to healthy people. It's like. <laughs> that's just PR right exactly exactly
0: so I like to do questions about personal finance are you comfortable sharing a little bit about your personal finances sure are you are you familiar with the fire community
1: Uh, I wasn't familiar with the acronym uh, before but I am familiar with like financial concepts that could lead people to uh, you know economic independence
0: so I thought following you on Twitter that you were one of those people so, you're oh, fooling okay. some of us.
1: <laughs> Maybe. Well, I mean, if you guys think I'm part of the community, like, do, I a, do I need a visa? Do I need to <laughs> be part of it? Maybe well, I'm part at of least it. You
0: have to have the card in your wallet. Yeah. Okay. What was your savings rate roughly when you were working in high tech? You know, my
1: first year, I probably saved about 20% plus maxing on my 401k. So, I don't know, anywhere from 20 to 50, 20 to 40, to 50%. Like enough that every month I had more money than the previous month but not so much where I was like penny pinching on the things that I would buy. And are you strictly an entrepreneur now? You don't have a consistent W-2? No, I still have a, a W-2 with my, my main job at the cryptocurrency exchange. It's good to supplement that with some of the income that I can make off of Twitter, uh, sharing my diet framework and recipes with, with the folks who are interested. And, you know, obviously the goal is to have multiple streams of income, um, diverse stream, uh, streams of income that, uh, you know, reduce my dependency on any, any single one of them. And, uh, you know, I'm obviously familiar with various concepts uh, that are, you know, thrown around in the financial communities because I did work at a hedge fund. I did major in economics at at Vanderbilt University and I own assets. So, yeah. What is your favorite thing to invest in? Uh, I need to own more Bitcoin. I think, um, you know, stocks for me, like I understand stocks are tough for me because I think that most American corporations are kind of like Enron's waiting to happen, but that can go on for a long time. And so it's hard for me to, to say like, like I think that our entire economy and our our entire political system is oriented towards propping up these like, you know, supernova type companies that could easily be Enron if they were, if, if their finances were, uh, you know, deeply investigated. And so I'm kind of conflicted as to think like, okay, at some point this ship is going to sink versus the entire system is constructed to keep this ship afloat. Um, so I've been underweight stocks, to be honest, over the last decade where, where they rallied a lot. Unfortunately, held on to some of the Google stock that was granted to me when I was there. But, you know, my portfolio performance over the last 10 years, it hasn't been anything impressive. It's, it's probably, it's done worse than the S&P because I didn't trust the S&P in 2010, which is why I came to Silicon Valley in the first place because I thought, that the the dollar was going to get blown up but I didn't know that that you know, we were just going to go up into the right for 10 years that we're going to take a fat dip and then start start increasing and so I need to own less dollars I, I own I have a large cash position now relative to what my my forecasted outlook is I think the dollar is going to continue to decrease in value and so I'd like to take on more debt I don't own a house right now I'd like to um, maybe buy one uh, with leverage to uh, to hedge out some inflation risk that I see coming uh, you can get a
0: mortgage for less than 3% on a 30-year right now. It's it's yeah. the lowest it's ever been.
1: Where would you buy if you could? I don't know. You know, uh, Zach Holm was trying to get me to move to Indiana. And I think, you know, if, especially if I'm if if i continually able to make money from the internet working wherever I want, there's no reason for me to live in one place year round. And so I really like Indianapolis training at Iron Rally Barbell in the summer. It's possible I could like stay there in the summer and maybe buy. The houses are cheap there compared to California possible I could buy a house there and then hang out somewhere else, maybe San Diego, maybe Austin or something like that in the winter, which would kind of give me the the most sun with people that I want to hang out with in the United States. And then obviously, you know, if I, if I think that this ship needs to be fled, then I, you know, I'd look to South America. I learned Spanish playing minor league baseball. I get along really well with uh, Latin American folks, uh, those whom I met. And so I think I, I do pretty well down South. What percentage of your net
0: worth is in Bitcoin roughly? Across all crypto assets, maybe like seven or eight. If you had to wager, let's say, $50,000 or even more than that on whether crypto or, or whether Bitcoin would go to less than $100 or more than, let's say, $250,000, which which way would you bet?
1: It's possible that I can do both. I think both are equally plausible because $250,000 is a hyperinflationary scenario, which is easily plausible. And then $100 is if there's a crash in the Bitcoin network, which is we know from, from developers uncovering bugs and fixing them. That it, is, it is possible the network can be attacked. And so I actually think those are, those are really good examples of, of polar extremes that I think could easily happen. Now, what, what that means is what I believe is that the asset class has an equal chance of increasing by 25X in value as it does losing 99% of its value. And so what that means is I should own a portion of my own portfolio that positions me well to capitalize on that. If it does go 25 X, but also not so much that I'm totally screwed if it goes down 99%.
0: Does it bother you that Bitcoin holders constantly hype it up on Twitter with the understanding that it's being hyped with the hope that someone will acquire it at a higher price?
1: It doesn't bother me i actually think that that's an intentional um, plan by some of the larger market participants and i have no like on the ground knowledge suggesting that this is the case but i do think that the markets are being um, kind of trained to view bitcoin as an alternative asset class and so if uh if there's news that's coming up that makes uh makes markets bullish on gold i do think that there's buyers kind of coming into the bitcoin markets to making sure that it correlates um, with gold movements in certain areas so that people can start, can more easily imagine it as, uh, as a digital gold. And so, you know, I think the, the market's still in its early days, there's still like some sketchy stuff that I'm sure is happening around the world with it. You know, does what happened on Twitter bother me so much? Not, not so much. No. Were you surprised by what happened in equities
0: markets earlier this year and the corresponding movement in Bitcoin or
1: maybe lack of movement
0: in Bitcoin? as you saw the markets start to tank in
1: March? No, I mean, I thought that the markets were gonna tank a little further. I thought the S&P was gonna maybe cross 2000, which is when I was gonna get back in and that never happened. And then, you know, with Bitcoin, it's like, that's such a small asset class that it's gonna move. It could easily move in a different way. You know, in retrospect, it would have been smart for me to, to accumulate more. You know, it's, it's every day when I read the news, I'm in disbelief that are these people serious with printing another $2 trillion, $4 trillion. Like what's going on here? Now that I completely don't take anybody in the government seriously, it probably is more sensible for me to just plan my life around irresponsible adults in positions of authority doing a lot of things to screw me over, like consistently. And so, how can I invest uh, under that hypothesis? Be, yeah, owning more crypto assets, you know, kind of distributing them around the world so that nobody can tax them if they really need money, and and putting myself in a position to be, you know, physically mobile if the economic situations dictate it. Try to make money in America and spend
0: it in Latin America. That is ideal. Uh, Yeah. You want some fun questions? Let's do it. Where were you the first time you logged on to the internet and what did you do?
1: Uh, I was at my house in Arena, California with my dad. We got a prodigy internet connection. I was in fourth grade and I believe the first time I logged on, Started uh, downloading pictures of NFL football players. So it was like like Dan Marino (laughs) pictures or something like that. i was like, oh, I can get all these posters that I used to buy. I can just get them online. Like, okay, I'll do that.
0: Speaking of technology, when I was probably six, Vinny Testaverde was taken in the first round by the Buccaneers. And my dad used to get Sports Illustrated. And I thought it was so cool that he could take the Sports Illustrated to work and make copies of Vinny Testaverde for me.
1: Totally. And I, and I remember like getting music the same way We're Like, oh, oh, I'm going to go to, I'm going to go to the, uh, the warehouse. What was it called? Like, uh, I think it was called the warehouse where I'd buy CDs or Sam Goody or something like that. And now it's like, I don't buy CDs. I don't know anything about that.
0: Yeah. I would buy CDs for one song. And sometimes at blockbuster music pay like 1795 for the CD just for the one song. Right.
1: Nuts. Crazy. Nuts. Yeah. Which is more cancerous sugar or feminism? I think it's important to uh, to differentiate which waves of feminism uh, we're talking about. I think, you know, first wave feminism, in the '60s, I think is is um, not something that I oppose. I think what we're talking about when you say feminism, you're talking about modern feminism, like the rejection of science, the rejection of logical reason. Yeah, that's pretty dangerous for a society to to completely turn its back on facts. Um, you know, I, these are two two separate buckets. I don't I don't think that they're I don't think that they're comparable, but I do think that would we be as a society be better off with people consuming less sugar and and having a more uh, fact-based understanding of why disparities exist within the world? Yeah, I do. Certainly do. But, you know, I'm not a trillioner. I don't have the ability to enact that change all by myself. You remind me a
0: lot of myself in that you're hyper-rational. Try to be, yeah. Has that harmed you in romantic relationships at all?
1: Uh, harmed it, It's a step away from harming me. It's like I, I know how to deal with it I know how it, it makes it, it makes some relationships with women more challenging because um, the thing that I'm working through right now is I look at rationality not as a, a guiding post to to affirmatively make decisions uh, by, but it is a way to. I don't look at rationality as as something that is always the best to use to affirmatively make decisions, but I do realize that uh, irrationality is something that that can produce lazy thinking and fraudulent uh, outcomes. And so, the challenge that I will always have um, in relationships with uh, you know less hyper rational people is. Uh, it's harder for me to, to draw the line between kind of an intuition-based uh, view of the world and fraud. And so what that kind of requires me to do is surround myself with successful people because the only way I can accept an irrational approach is if it's done by someone who's had documented success with similar irrational approaches because to me that, that is actually rational. If you have, It just means that your rationality is actually ahead of rationality. But if you haven't had uh, continued successful success with an approach that I view as irrational, then I just think you're full of shit and you're, you're, that's just fraud. Um, so that's sort of like kind of how I structure my own personal relationships. But yeah, you know, it's, a, it's a thing. It's not wrong for bringing that up. It's
0: tough to witness the conflation of thinking and feeling. You even hear it in people's language. Well, I just feel like, and you can tell that they haven't thought it through. My fear is that that is getting worse.
1: Well, and it is because it's easier, right? And so the thing is, it's like some people have tremendous intuitions. Most people don't, (laughs) right? So all of these, all of these, oh, listen to yourself. Listen, you know, it's like, mm, that's what the people in jail did. They listened to their own intuition. So it's like, you need to have a good intuition if you're going to listen to your intuition. Like, I'm not going to tell people to eat intuitively when intuitive eating just tells them to eat donuts all the time. You need to have a good intuition. And if you have a good intuition, then you need to listen to it. But if you don't, you also need to understand that it's not good and shouldn't be listened to. And so the most successful people in the world are going to tend to have good intuitions. That's how they became successful. And so the advice that they're going to give other people is actually the advice that they took themselves, which is kind of not applicable to the average person. Um, I do think that you know to have a, a positive and constructive worldview, you need to combine intuition and logic. And what I've done for myself is as I get older, I actually use more intuition than logic, but I still use logic to like sanity check myself. And I think you, you need to have a hybridized approach if you want to optimize your success.
0: Is that based on experience that you're able to use more intuition in your decision making?
1: Yeah. No. Because it's like pattern recognition. Like I'm not, I'm not taking scientific double blind studies on the patterns that I observe. I just see it. Like, yeah, that's about right. I don't have time to like do a, a methyl methodologically sound case study on this. I just have a feeling that it's right. You know, but th- at the same time, I'm very math oriented. And so if, if I'm trying to understand what's happening around me in a political situation or social situation, I just go look at like FBI data tables and tell them what what I think I need to know. So yeah, I mean I think not not very many people are able to hybridize that approach, but I think that's something that um, i've I've been fortunate enough to have like decent enough exposure to both uh, both ways of approaching it that I find value in each. Is there a country you visited that you'd most like to go back to? Well, I mean, most of the countries I've vis- visited recently, Thailand, Hong Kong. I don't think I want to go back to Hong Kong anytime soon. Colombia might be cool. When this COVID passes, I think I'm going to spend a lot more time in South America. Uh, Uruguay is a country that I haven't been to, but I'd be interested in visiting because they love beef. <laughs> uh, and it seems to be like politically stable and they speak Spanish, which I do too. So, but then You're right. It's right there
0: next to Argentina, which has great beef yeah and I, i've spent a lot of time in thailand most of my time in chiang mai and we spent a month in Koh Samui. pp i've been to krabi of course bangkok which is your favorite area or do you have a favorite island
1: i've spent more time in kosamoy than any others now that's just because the people i was going with were in Koh Samui. Mm. i like to go to chiang mai it seems pretty cool maybe next time i go i'll go to chiang mai Right. It no, is something like that, but. <laughs> yeah,
0: it's getting a little bit overrun with digital nomads. Coffee shops are always packed, but yeah. it's a great little town.
1: Check it out; it's out. There's
0: an island off the coast of Koh Samui that we visited that that we liked even more. I think it was Koh Tao.
1: I don't know.
0: A lot of times there's little islands off of big islands, and Koh Samui would be considered a, a bigger island, and so you go to sure. these little islands that they don't. Some of them they don't allow me- mechanized vehicles and you realize, wow, I should have been spending all my time here on this little island.
1: It's better oh, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> if yeah. somebody
0: dropped a million dollars in your lap tomorrow, what would you do with it?
1: Probably just buy real estate in areas that I want to live for part of the part of my year. Yeah, maybe I'd focus on um, what I'm doing on the fitness side full time because it really is my passion. Uh, I, I would, it would be great if I could uh, share some of the shortcuts that I've learned with my own training and, uh, and with my own frameworks with other people. And as many people as, as can benefit from them. Um, and if I think, you know, what's the easiest way I can impact the world, I think initially it's probably that, right. We, we live in a society of very physically sick, probably mentally sick individuals. And, you know, I've found a, a combination of approaches that have allowed me to, you know, get results that most people think are not possible. A lot of people think I want steroids. A lot of people think like, you know, like did, did Which is you, the highest you compliment that? you could be paid, right, right? <laughs> Every two weeks. It's like, are you on steroids? Like seriously, just tell me. I'm like, uh, no, I'm not. And so it's like, I want to share these things with people. And so I'd love to to have a vehicle that would allow me to do that. And certainly if somebody deposited a million dollars in my bank account, that would make it a little bit easier.
0: You talked about mental health. So I've seen where these woke folks around the country, something like 40%
1: Self-report a mental health issue. That doesn't surprise me. That's that's actually a little bit high, but it doesn't surprise me that they over-index on that at all. What percentage chance
0: do you think Donald Trump has of being re-elected?
1: <sighs> Fifty. Because I thought going into the twenty sixteen election, I thought he was, I thought about thirty five to forty was his chance. Where the rest of the media was giving him twenty. And I can I'm going to correct from my mistake where you know the media is is he's down in the polls as far as I'm aware. I don't really follow that that news that closely, but uh, because I was correct in going against the media in in 2016, but not fully, I'll bump it up a little bit. I'll say
0: 50%. I like to do this deal where I ask guests if someone is overrated or underrated.
1: Let's do it. Mike Cernovich. I think he's incorrectly rated. I follow him. He follows me. Um, I think he puts out know, really interesting content really good uh he gets stigmatized by people who don't like him it doesn't seem like he's i I haven't read a criticism of him that isn't emotionally motivated uh if there is one i'm happy to read it but all the criticisms of him just seem like they're of like schoolyard kids who are just jealous that he gets attention so that doesn't really count as a substantive criticism as far as i'm concerned and he did good work with the uh, the Epstein case. And so, you know, incorrectly rated would probably be the, the, the grade I would give it. Good commentary. What about Elon Musk? Well, he's not overrated by the people who follow him. I think the people who criticize him say he's kind of a con artist. If you can see the world with greater degrees of complexity than the next guy, people might think you're a, a con artist. Um, and so I think he's, I think he's probably fairly fairly weight, uh, rated right now, perhaps underrated. You know, people are still criticizing him for like smoking weed with Joe Rogan and tweeting the things he tweets. It's like they don't realize that when you're on a different level than other people intellectually, you don't have to follow the same rules. And if you want to, if you want to not follow those rules, get on his level intellectually and you don't have to follow them.
0: Put yourself in a financial position to tell the truth. If you have your shit together and you're physically strong... You basically have a halo effect. That's yeah. something you've said.
1: Yeah. Uh, if you're going to have contradictory opinions or at least inflammatory opinions, it helps to be in good shape. And, uh, you know, I, I believe in certain conspiracy theories. I believe in a lot of non mainstream things. And it would be a lot harder for me to, to talk about this if I wasn't like, if I didn't look like I was physically healthy. People would think I was weird. People would still think I'm weird, but they would think I was a lot more weird uh, if I wasn't physically healthy. And so I think. Being in good shape enables me to have opinions that other people uh, aren't able to get away with. And the same thing could be said for the intellectually gifted.
0: They have probably put themselves in a financial situation like Joe Rogan, like Elon Musk, where you're basically incancellable, uncancelable,
1: right? That would be ideal. Yeah, I don't know if anybody's truly uncancelable but that would be <laughs> It's ideal. not easy to say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Dave Portnoy. Overrated or underrated? Underrated. I think he's very smart. Very, very smart guy. Like, he doesn't come off as arrogant, but he obviously like, understands that he's really smart. And he's able to get people to like him. And that's one thing that really smart people sometimes struggle with. Smart and success. He's very smart, he's very successful, and he's likable. That's, a, that's a, a unique combination because usually some of those things get in the way of the other things. Usually, unlikable people won't even use the word likable.
0: It doesn't enter their vocabulary. Yeah. Lack the awareness to consider whether or
1: not they can be likable. And no, he's very, he's, being likable. yeah, he's very socially smart. He's just a smart guy, obviously. Yeah. yeah. Alex Rodriguez, as a commentator. I've actually never listened to him as a commentator. I don't watch baseball as much. I've watched him as a player. I'd, I'd heard that he'd been taking steroids a lot longer than normal people had heard he'd been taking steroids. I, you know, I'm sure he knows a lot about baseball but I don't know about anything about his commentary skills. Well, dude, this conversation
0: was everything that I anticipated it would be. I really so appreciate you coming me. on.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for, for reaching out. I, I, uh, uh, I really enjoyed it to speak about that for, for folks listening. If, you're, if you want to get in touch, uh, sustain gluttony, S-U-S-T-A-I-N-G-L-U-T-T-O-N-Y on Twitter, sustain gluttony, sustain dot gluttony on Instagram. So It's the same thing, just with sort a of period in between um reach out to me if you have questions always happy to chat love talking about all these things could talk for hours cool i hope you'll come back sometime hope to also was he as good as
0: advertised and i plan to buy his book i just hit 40 years old and i know that i could be a little more strict about my diet i'm not nearly as lean as i was say 10 years ago lady o does a lot of good cooking around here and it's hard to pass up she'll text me at 10 11 a.m. and ask if I want some chorizo and eggs and maybe I had planned to fast that day and she forgot and this ain't your Aunt Linda's breakfast with standard Ego waffle and your Jimmy Dean roll of sausage no I walk in and she's got a spread of fruit and avocado and sour cream cheese English muffin all to go with the chorizo and eggs I mean what would you do so it's a fight to ensure that the abs don't become flabs And one thing P.D. Mangan has taught us is that age is no excuse for not being shredded. We can all get lean, regardless of the number of times we've been around the sun. Alex made some fantastic points on this show about rationality and decision-making and the need to get outside our ideological bubbles. And I also like how he talked about possibly making an escape if the United States were to slide into violence and possible civil war. He's got his Spanish ready and he's going to go to Uruguay. I like that. Friends, I thank you for listening. It means the world to me. Please keep the feedback coming. I read every message and every email and I reply to every single one of them. If you leave a review on Apple Podcasts, I will send you a token of appreciation in the mail. And if you enjoyed this episode with Alex, please copy the link and text it to a friend. To follow my adventures on Instagram and Twitter, I'm at man underscore overseas. Sincerely. Thank you, folks.